Hello and welcome for speaking for the peas, a Gregor Mendel fan cast. This joke <laughs> only works if you know that the guy who invented Punnett squares, which is a way we visualize talking about genes and stuff, big B, little B, you know, is named Gregor Mendel, and that he figured all that stuff out by bringing peas. But actually, I'm just fucking with you. This is Environmental Advocacy Podcast. Wow, I can't talk. Hosted by two dorks who are environmentally educated. I'm Ellie. I prefer they pronouns. That lady over there is Lauren. Hello. Hey, and today we're going to tell you about lawns. What specifically are we talking about today, Lauren? Well, first, I will start out by talking about how lawns became what they are today. And then Ellie is going to tell us why lawns suck and ways to reduce your lawn's impact on your local local ecosystem. Lastly, I'm... Oh, and then then we didn't do the last part. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We got lazy. Uh, Anyway. Not lazy, just... This this script is so long already. (laughs) Yeah, we kind of... We were, like, gonna do an Endangered Species of the Week, and then we looked at the script, and we were like, we're good. We'll do it. We'll do, like, a two for next time or something. Uh... Anyway, that all sounds hella interesting. It's almost as if this podcast is about things you and I personally find interesting. Uh, but before we dive into it, I'm going to give us a little intro on why we care about this stuff. And before that even, do you want to tell us about the fun drink you went and grabbed last second? Oh, yeah. Um, so I'm drinking Ace uh, Pineapple Craft Cider, which is, I mean, it's basically exactly what you'd think. It's like a pineapple you always have the uh, funnest drink yeah it's really nice gluten-free certified <laughs> thank god <laughs> <laughs> i'm drinking gluten-free water <laughs> i'm drinking water because i have walked several miles in the last two days because my partner thought it would be fun to forget to update his driver's license so his license fucking expired <laughs> oh my god so That's and then he pain. needed to get his car inspected so we drove his car to the place and then walked around for a bit came back to the place and they were like oh sorry we haven't gotten to it yet so we said fuck it we walked home I was... and then we had to walk there again so i could drive it home and i was like this is not a thing i will ever do for you again i was wondering why he said something about being on the phone with the dmv for hours yeah because um well because pandemic he can't get like he had to get, make a an appointment and they're making it like a whole to do to get an appointment apparently huh honestly every time anyone talks about it i zone out because it's not interesting but the point is it's it's a lie (laughs) (laughs) anyway so that's why i'm drinking water and why my throat kind of hurts oh hopefully it's not just the pandemic and i have covid that would suck anywho's let's talk about the thing we're supposed to talk about which is grass and shit talking about how lawns are evil. You may have brushed her off going, hey man, I use my lawn every so often for barbecues and sometimes I play cornhole on it. Quit hating. Um, Unfortunately, your Aunt Willow is kind of right. Lawns, as we know them today, have a pretty big negative impact on the environment. We'll tell you more about why that is in a bit, but first I want you to learn a new word, which is biodiversity. I'm going to break it down to chunks like we always do. Bio means life. Hopefully in the year 2020, you know what diversity means. But just in case, diversity means 
variety or many different things. So biodiversity together means many different types of life or a variety of life. Biodiversity is not only a word we use, but also a measurement. We measure the health of a region with biodiversity. It's kind of like when you go to a clinic and they take your vitals, they'll take like your temperature, your blood pressure, that sort of thing. When an environmental scientist looks at an ecosystem, they look at its vital signs. They look at its temperature. Sure, it's dissolved oxygen in the water, maybe. And they look at biodiversity. So that's that's to say they see, they like kind of do like a species count, right? Yeah. They'll, they'll like if you, for example, you have a stream and you want to make sure and you want to check on its biodiversity, you will literally like go out in the stream with your galoshes and you'll like turn over rocks and be like, I saw a crawfish of this genus. Write that down. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> write that down. Write that down. Yeah. It's not. It's only the only difference between uh, goofing off in science is that you write it down. Yeah, and you can um, and you can also uh, measure the health of a of an ecosystem by looking at what kinds of species are present in it. That's um, so true. So. Yeah, if like a, a crawfish versus like a bass or whatever, like different, there are different species that indicate the health of a stream specifically. Like different insects mean oh it's hella polluted versus these insects mean oh it's clean and and happy and good. Yeah, but that's not what this is about. Dang it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so biodiversity is basically just a way we measure an ecosystem's health. So what does that have to do with lawns? Why did I make you learn a new word? Uh, the answer is actually super straightforward for once. Lawns, as we know them, completely lack biodiversity. They're what we call a monoculture. Now, I've, I've uh, described this in a different episode, but just in case you didn't listen to that one, monoculture means one crop. In this case, the crop is grass. So with so much of our land covered in a monoculture, we're taking away from the biodiversity that makes the ecosystem healthy. Make sense? Ding, ding, ding. The podcast is going to get hijacked for a second to talk about my interests. So this is Does a this new... mean I get to look at the poem now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're allowed to look at the poem now. So this is a new <laughs> segment. It's Welcome to Poetry Corner. This is a segment where I think of a relevant poem and hold everyone hostage for a brief reading of it. So today's poem is actually an excerpt from Walt Whitman's poem, Song of Myself, from his book, Leaves of Grass. Delightful. (laughs) A child said, what is the grass? Fetching it to me with full hands. How could I answer the child? I do not know what it is any more than he. I guess it must be the flag of my disposition out of hopeful green stuff woven. Or I guess it is the handkerchief of the Lord, a scented gift and remembrancer designedly dropped bearing the owner's name some way in the corners that we may see and remark and say whose. Or I guess the grass itself is a child, the produced babe of the vegetation. Or I guess it is a uniform hieroglyphic, and it means sprouting alike in broad zones and narrow zones, growing among black folks as among white. Canuck, Tuckahoe, Congressman Cuff, I give them the same, I receive them the same. Well, Mr. Whitman, you published this poem in 1855, so I guess I can forgive your lack of awareness about the damages caused by lawn monocultures. (laughs) Anyway, back to the podcast. I didn't relate to that poem, mostly because he didn't mention sneezing your face off every time you smell the grass. I'm so allergic to grass pollen, man. Yeah, I don't know if it was, like, obvious from, like... I don't know how obvious it was, but the reason I picked this poem, this, or I thought of, I guess, this uh, poem excerpt particularly is that he talks about grass being a uniform hieroglyphic, 
and um, oh. kind of romanticizes lawn monoculture by saying that it sprouts alike in all of the in every area and <laughs> everybody poops everyone has lawns <laughs> it's just it's yeah it's like it's like a romanticism of uh lawn monoculture so uh anyway uh, that's great that's why i picked the, that's all why right. i picked the excerpt he mentions um what was sprouting alike in broad zones speaking of broad zones here's the thing <laughs> what a segue <laughs> there are many American miles covered in lawn. To be precise, 128,000 square kilometers or 49,000 square miles are covered in lawn in the United States as of whatever year this source I cited said. You don't care about that though. What you want to know is how many football fields is that? <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, thanks largely in part to a website that literally converts square miles to football fields. 49,000 square miles is equivalent to 23,716,000 football fields. Helpful. I love putting things in terms of football fields. <laughs> Don't know why when I wrote this, I thought that was so interesting. <laughs> For reference, the United States is about 3.8 million square miles, so like 1.8 billion football fields. Now, I didn't do the math on this. I super Googled it. But apparently this means that just under 2% of the United States is just lawns. I know it seems like a small percent, but keep in mind that it is the number, it's actually the number one crop, apparently, is uh, grass. I saw that recently. That's true. And 2% of 3.8 million square miles is still many, many American miles. It's still larger than the total uh, land area of Nevada and Massachusetts combined. Oh, that's so big. Yeah, that's probably the best uh, <laughs> description I could have given. Now, Lauren, how did we get here? Why is so much of the United States covered in this garbage? All right. So where did we even get the idea to cultivate tracts of various grasses? Well, the answer has a few facets. I'm going to preface this by clearly stating that this is regarding the development of Western lawn culture specifically. Yeah, this whole podcast is very United States-centric. <laughs> yeah, United States-centric, England-centric, you know, Sorry. the usual. The it's usual. what data is available and also what we're familiar with because we're white lady, well, white people. Also, yeah, I mean, it's a U.S.-centric podcast. It kind of had to be from England. Anyway. Sorry about it. Quick shout out to Encyclopedia Britannica for describing Western gardens as, quote, demonstrating the Western insistence on physical control of the environment. Oh my God, that's so good. I really liked it. Thank you. It's <laughs> a really good phrase. Holy shit. So this is precisely the attitude towards outdoor spaces that we will be going over. Manifest destiny, man. <laughs> So in pre-medieval times, fields of low-growing ground cover, that is grasses, would be purposely grown around settlements. This was actually instituted as a safety precaution as it allowed villagers and guards to view the horizon and anybody that may be approaching friendly or not. Yeah, from a military standpoint, you want to be surrounded by a blank area so you can so basically you take away the enemy's cover. Basically, Trees yeah. Are a thing you can hide they, behind. They didn't really, I mean, for this, they didn't really cultivate any specific grasses, but they would cut down trees. Um, yeah. This and village commons for grazing livestock were the first places where these intentionally maintained meadows were seen in Europe. 
And yes, these areas were a lot closer to meadows than the close-cropped monoculture grasses that we generally think of when we picture lawns. So eventually there was a shift from these early lawns to lawn gardens. References to lawn gardens are found in medieval English literature. The makeup of so these... some bored monk was writing it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> more more like uh, more like some uh, aristocracy types. So... <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, the make... they added ease to the end of every word. Yeah, the makeup of these gardens were predominantly a mix of grasses and meadow flowers. But some gardens did include turf made up of grass monocultures. These areas of turf were used for very important activities. That's right. I'm talking about sports, specifically oh, lawn oh, yeah. bowling and cricket. <laughs> so important. <laughs> Though cricket was called club ball at the time. I guess if that matters to you. It does. Thank you for, thank you for specifying. <laughs> it does. But yes, the introduction of the... Bowling Green was probably the first instance of modern turf. Isn't that Isn't fun? there literally a name of a... There's a literal name of a university. I think I, my school played them in college football called Bowling Green. Yes, I think, I think they're think in Ohio. They are, I think they are located in Bowling Green, Ohio. That was a Detroit Bowl. Little Caesars. Anyway, continue. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I just had to check. This does not okay, matter. Yeah. Bowling Green is both <laughs> Bowling Green State University is located in Bowling Green, Ohio. I had to check and make sure that it was also the name of the city. <laughs> I was I was just like, wait, I've heard this phrase before. <laughs> yes, that it's, it's in a brilliant uh, moment of word association. Ellie brought something up so mundane that everyone <laughs> fell asleep and turned the podcast off. Have a nice day. <laughs> but yeah, the bo- the Bowling Green was developed for lawn bowling, and no, I don't know what that is or what the rules are. Um, anyway, these, why not? I didn't look it up. What kind of professionalism is that? (laughs) So anyway, these spaces were kept closely cut either by allowing livestock to graze on it or the use of hand scythes. So other fun fact, the Southampton old bowling green was first used in 1299. It is actually the world's oldest surviving bowling green as someone who lives in the u.s that is so absurdly old i felt the need to include it in the podcast that's not a real year english gardens so english lawns and gardens only got more elaborate in the 16th and 17th centuries additionally lawns became a lot more common all across western and some of northern europe that is to say they became more common amongst wealthy landowners i mentioned hand scythes before that's right Grass near the home was generally maintained by servants with hand sides. That means that these huge tracts of land are not even being used for any kind of livestock production. So it's a it's a flex, basically, just to say I have all of this land and I don't even need to use it productively. So these rolling expanses of minimally adorned lawns are now a big old status symbol. Imagine having all that money and using it to be this obscenely boring. On a side note, sports turf is still going strong at this time, as an early form of soccer was growing in popularity in the 16th century. There's also evidence that golf was evolving in Scotland at this time. Why am I talking so much about sports turf? I'm so glad you asked. Most (laughs) of the people doing all of this research on monoculture lawn history are turf scientists. So, are we going to drop the name? Are we going to drop the name of our fa- our favorite dude? 
Yes. Uh, James Beard. He's very prominent, and uh, he <laughs> passed away. Oh yeah, and he, James Beard. He he recently passed away, but he, I read a lot of his yeah, work in the course of writing this. <laughs> the I, entire time we did the, the research for this podcast, we kept being like, "All of the fucking literature is by a guy named James Beard. What a legend!" Uh, and over the course of writing this, I learned more than I ever wanted to about the grasses that sports are played on. So let's keep, <laughs> let's keep going though. So the biggest change in the expense and therefore accessibility of lawn monoculture happened in 1830. The invention of the first mechanical lawnmower. This made that the, the close cropped lawns of the aristocracy available to middle class landowners who cannot afford servants equipped with hand scythes. So now we see all of these people who have had the wide world of turf grass suddenly in reach. This is really when we see the ubiquity of lawns kick off. And honestly, the history gets a lot more boring because a lot of this from here on out is inventions regarding lawn care. So I won't be talking about it. There. Some I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> some final notable incidents are Frederick Law Olmsted, um, designer of Central Park, uh, doing a bunch of landscape design in the U.S., including the Riverside suburb in Chicago where every residence included a yawn. Uh, what? <laughs> a lawn, which helped to popularize the idea of, you know, house with lawn. And, of course, the 1950s white picket fence suburban dream. So, all this said, where are we now regarding lawns? Well, in many places, the maintenance of lawns is legally required by homeowners associations. In 2008, a 66-year-old man living near Tampa actually did jail time due to his browning lawn that he could not afford to resod. He was released the day... Guess what race he was? Guess what race he was? (laughs) He was released the day after when neighbors heard about the situation and came over to resod the lawn. While this was admittedly a pretty exceptional circumstance, it's actually not the only time it's happened. If you're interested in hearing anything more about this, I highly, highly recommend listening to episode 177 of 99% Invisible Lawn Order. It's, it's really interesting, really entertaining. Um, oh, lawn order, law but- and order. <laughs> I get it. I I'm scrolling down and Ellie made a very very situational meme about about uh James Beard uh banging out papers about turf grass and then uh and then us finding information about it in, in 2020. Yeah, it's like a firefighter in full gear high-fiving a little kid with a plastic hat on and we're the we're the little kid saying us trying to find information and the firefighter is some dude in the 1970s banging out papers about turf grass i it's a meme that only relates to two people and they're on this call that said ellie we laughed about it for 10 minutes i know it's a very i don't think it's very funny verbally told but that's okay no um anyway ellie go ahead and go ahead and tell us about why we hate lawns why why are they hateable why are they bad yeah yeah so this segment is called lawns are fucking stupid the segment why is it bad what's the evidence how angry should i be 
These are the questions we are always here to answer on Speaking for the Trees, or peas in today's case. Um, <laughs> this segment could be super long, but honestly, I am going to summarize it pretty quickly in bullet point form and let y'all take a gander at the sources I'm putting online so when you're arguing with someone, you can just point them to the, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, um, 13 sources I cited for seven bullets. So let's too long didn't read it. Lawns are bad for the following bullet point reasons, and Lauren, you can chime in with any additions if you want. Okay. Reason number one. Overuse of generic, non-targeted pesticides kill local wildlife. We did. Makes sense. Yes. Bad. Two, monoculture of lawns doesn't provide habitat for local wildlife. For every square foot of sod that you put down for your lawn, you've taken a square foot away from the ecosystem, which is bad. Uh, reason number three, grass isn't a good way to store carbon, i.e. fight climate change, but you know what is? The local plants you killed to put the grass there. Yeah, grass is generally not a, um, it's not a native plant in most no, locations. Well, it's, it's less about the native and more about it's just not a good carbon store. Yeah. But, the plant, but often the plants you've replaced, the plants that were there before that you replaced, often um, have deeper roots and like need more carbon to make their tissues. Yeah. And that's where the carbon goes. Grass also doesn't live through a full life cycle when it's in your lawn because you cut it off before it can do anything with seeding. So that's true too. Number four, fertilizer used on turf washes into waterways like streams, rivers, etc., combining to a process called eutrophication. Basically, what this means is the water is flooded with the nutrients from the fertilizers like nitrogen and phosphorus, allowing plant life in the water, also known as algae, to grow at crazy fast rates, which kills the things in the river that you like, like fish and bugs, if you're a naturalist, which is bad. Yeah. Number five, in areas where drought is a problem, people are using the water to keep a thing alive that isn't native and doesn't matter and is strictly ornamental. Fucking people need that to drink, Karen and Craig on 2nd Street. Talking to you. Watch someone who listens to this is like, hey, I know them. I literally made that up. Reason number six. Overuse and drift of herbicides and general killing of what humans consider to be quote-unquote weeds takes even more habitat away from native species. Also, the herbicides are bad for us, the humans? Like they cause cancer? Like it's a known phenomenon? <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so like, and also I, I just lost over it, but basically the drift of herbicides is when you spray something onto the, onto some grass or onto a weed, the wind can move some of the particles away and put it on something that is not the weed you're trying to kill. That's drift. And it can kill the grass anyway. It can kill other humans. It can kill bees. Like, you know, it's bad. And finally, reason number seven as Lauren mentioned extensively, they're just a status symbol. It's just the botanical equivalent of a fancy car or a yacht. There is no reason to have a lawn other than people expect you to. It's true. I will leave plenty of sources on our website. And basically, if you go to our website and look at the transcript, um, it'll be those will be at the end of my section. So with all of that in mind, how to make your lawn less fucking stupid is the name of this segment. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to something more fun and interesting and less depressing and sad, which is, of course, what you can do. That's right, you. 
to make your lawn or your parents' lawn or your neighbor's lawn or whomever's lawn better for the environment. So to start ourselves off, we got to do some research on what your lawn is made of. Uh, according to a thing I read, 20% of landowners do not know the species of grass that their lawn is made of. Most people don't even get soil tests done to figure out what type of fertilizer or herbicide they need for the season. They're willing to spend about $30 per year on herbicides, even though they don't know what they need, and up to $150 a month on lawn care services. So right off the bat, one way you can make your lawn better and like more safe is to know about it so you can like reduce the amount of herbicides you spend willy-nilly, if any. Yeah, that's also just good if you are, you know, prevented from doing more dramatic things to limit yeah. um, the amount of lawn that you even have. The herbicides thing is like, I think a lot of it is just unneeded. <laughs> yes, that's, yes. <laughs> it's just, and like, you're just spraying literal toxin into the environment. Like, don't do that. Okay, so why do people even have lawns if they don't know what it's made of and they're willing to spend so much money on it, if they're willing to throw chemicals on it without bothering to figure out if they even need them? What's up with that? If you go to the average homeowner and ask them how satisfied they are with their natural surroundings, they tend to say they're pretty dang satisfied. According to a study I read, people are really satisfied with the uniformity of the grasses that lawns are made of and how they make a thick blanket over the landscape. They like the coverage. They like combining these grasses with other surfaces that don't let water get through, like sidewalks and patios. We just like creating flood risks for ourselves um, is a thing that humans like to do. Yeah. Yeah, so, I love pooling. It's great. So we need to convince people that grass is not the only way to achieve like a uniform, nice green surface. I don't know how to, how to convince people. I only know how to tell them how to find resources they need. Let's get solar punk. You're probably thinking, oh, I know. I'll go grab some English ivy. That'll make a nice green surface and it looks super pretty. But... Don't do that. <laughs> it is a habitat for rats and mosquitoes, which I'm guessing you don't want. Oh, oh um, also, it's an invasive species, and as you know, those aren't great. And if you don't know, why not try our previous episode on invasive species? For this segment, I was going to try to list a bunch of common species from different regions, and then I realized there's so many fucking plants, my dude. If I listed all of them, we'd be here forever. So instead, I'm going to teach you how to look these things up for yourself. Um, you're going to have to do some research, and some of it's scientific, but I believe in you, and I'll, I'll hold your hand the whole time. So, when you're looking for any kind of plant you need to put in your garden for ecological purposes, you want the word native in your search. You also want to know what soil region you live in. So, first you're going to head your fine ass over to the USDA Plant Hardiness Zone website. I don't know why I went to that accent. And you're going to type in your zip code and also inexplicably fill in a CAPTCHA. Don't know why I had to do that. I typed in my zip code and I found out that I am in zone 5B. So, so this will be useful when we type in our search to help narrow down what plants will thrive where I live. So now I need to know what type of light my garden gets. Some people like myself brag can just look and observe their yard over a week or so and just kind of figure it out what type of light different parts get. But maybe you're not one of those people who has an aunt who's a Disney princess that taught them everything about gardening, okay? That's fine. If you're not one of those people or don't have any green thumb skills, here's what you can do. I'm so sorry. It looks like a lot of work. I won't do this. <laughs> In order to do this, you're going to have to draw 
or use like MS Paint or something. Um, and by the way, if, if I go too fast and you're like, wait, slow down, just go to uh, gardenfundamentals.com. Um, they have all this information for you. The website suggested graphing paper. So what you're gonna wanna do is kind of fill in the shape of your house, uh, include areas like shades and decks and driveways, note where the trees are in relation to your house um, and like bushes and stuff. Uh, if you have a couple trees, you can draw them in individually. And if you have a, couple, a lot of trees, you can just kind of draw a blob. I don't blame you. The goal here is to show a vague understanding of distance between the things that block light from your garden areas. If you have already existing gardens, you can note those too if you want and try to make sure the size makes sense relative to your house drawing. So now that you have your drawing, pat yourself on the back. Now unpat yourself on the back because you do need five copies of it. And if you don't have a copier, I bet that's gonna be annoying. Anyway, <laughs> told you this is obnoxious. Now we need to figure out which way the sun is coming from. Hopefully you vaguely know which way east and west are. Um, so figure out where that is in relation to like your front door and then draw that with an arrow on your map. So now that we've done the art portion of this practice, which is probably the hardest part, uh, we will now do the science part. Armed with our fancy new map, we are going to observe the yard. Pick a day where it's nice and sunny, not that many clouds, and ideally you'll start in the morning and see where the light falls. Go outside and look where your shadow is. Walk around all the things you noted on the map and draw the shadow from that object into, on your map. Basically just on the side of the object, add a line around the perimeter of the shadow and shade it in where there's a shadow. Makes sense. Doesn't have to be particularly detailed, just note where they are, how far they extend. And if you feel very lazy, you could just draw an arrow to extend how far the shadow is to the best of your ability. You're gonna repeat this four times uh, in one day. So like example, if your first one's at 9 a.m., you could do another at 12 p.m., another at 3 p.m., another at 6 p.m. So you have four filled out maps and a fifth clean map. Look at your four previous maps. This is another artsy part. Wherever you see all four maps have either shade or sun, mark those on your fifth map. So you might like, if you have like a diamond of area where there's sh shade all, on all four maps, you'll mark that diamond and write shade on it or shade it in. Then if there's any places where it like overlaps, uh, like maybe it, at 9 a.m. it was dark and then at 3, 3 p.m. it was light, you can mark that as partially shady on your map. This is, I, I know this seems like a lot of work, but if you really don't know the sun situation and you can't just like stare at it and figure it out, this is how you do it. So we've done the hard work. We figured out what uh, zone we live in and we figure out what type of light we get in different parts of our garden. So now we can add that to our search. So let's say I have a yard. I mean, we can all dream. I don't have a yard. Um, that is in zone 5B, part shade. I type that in along with the search term native and ground cover and Google or whatever search engine you're using will return the cert, uh, results that cater to your yard. For example, when I plugged in my stuff, Google told me to buy sweet woodruff because it does well in zone five and all those things. And it also likes the Northern United States as a bonus. Now you may be saying, Ellie, that's all well and good, but I already have grass. What am I supposed to do with it? And that's a fair question. In short, we are going to kill your grass. In long, here is exactly how to kill your grass. <laughs> I joked about killing grass, but what we're actually doing is restoring the lawn to what it would have been had the grass not been planted. So don't think of it as like, I'm destroying something. No, you're doing a service. 
There's a couple of methods to get rid of the layer of sod slash grass, but they basically are the same in, in that they both involve smothering it and preventing it from growing. You can either cover it in plastic sheeting, which is called solarizing, or you can cover it in biodegradable materials such as cardboard and newspaper and then cover that with mulch. That is called sheet mulching. Uh, solarizing takes about four to six weeks and sheet mulching takes about six to eight months. And you probably do this in the summertime when it's nice and sunny. However, as an environmentalist, I recommend the sheet mulching one, even though it takes longer, just because it leaves you with a ton of fertile soil afterwards. Also, mulch is less ugly than a bunch of plastic. So when you're finally, you're finally, you've done the research, you've killed all the sod, you're ready to plant your lawn with things that don't suck. You want it to be fall to help the plants develop uh, healthy roots. Uh, I don't know the mechanism behind it. I didn't look it up, I'm so sorry. Now, you can put all that research you did to good use. If you have hills, plant trees on those to help with soil erosion, because the roots will go in and grab the soil for you. Be sure to pick native trees. Don't prick, hey, look at me. Don't plant Bradford pears. Don't do it. They're an invasive species. Look it up. Do your do your due diligence. Nah, I can't fucking say the phrase. Do your dil, nope. Lauren, say it for me. Do your due diligence. Thank you. I can't fucking say it. That was so many right. tries. I gave you so I much tried. time to try. I tried so hard. Okay, put hardy shrubs around. Add some vertical interest to your garden as well. Uh, plus, you don't have to take care of them once they're established, which is a big bonus. I also recommend focusing more on perennials than on annuals, unless you're one of those people who really likes to plant annuals and have like a theme garden. Don't get those people. I don't understand. Uh, because they're just less work and less money overall spent on your garden. If you're feeling really ambitious and like you really want to help the environment, you can also look into the plants our host species for various insects or migratory uh, native species. So it's not just about feeding these guys, it's about giving them a place to live while they migrate or just hang out. A lot of native grasses provide the service. Yes, I know what you're thinking. I just killed all the grass and you're right. I'm telling you to look up some native grasses, not that fucking turkey turf bullshit that served, <laughs> served like ornamental grasses rather than as turf and plant them in little clusters. Okay, to be clear, by ornamental grasses, you mean let them grow tall, yes? Yes. Don't... Yeah, like actually let them like grow and don't keep cutting them. Yes, because it won't do anything if you keep them cropped short. Yeah, the, the, the animals that like grass, they like the length of the grass. That's why they like it. <laughs> Okay, uh, I, it's here I would also like to point out that if you live in a drought-prone area, you should add the phrase, um, oh shit, what is it? I didn't actually add this to my copy. Uh, water efficient or something like that. Um, you should look into drought-prone plant life as well for your garden. There's a specific horticulture phrase, I can't remember it off the top of my head. Here on the East Coast, that's not much of a problem. We have so much fucking rain here, but I imagine if you live in like Nevada or... Arizona, that could be an issue. So look into water, ec water economic, water efficient plants. God, what is that? Oh, this is gonna bother me. Finally, if you're a big pollinator fan, be sure to look into flowering plants and host species for your favorite pollinators or whichever pollinator in your region needs the most help. Thanks for listening to my gigantic wall of text I wrote about killing your lawn and replacing it with native wall wildlife. Let the solar punk revolution begin. Wow, I wish I could, that was so informative. I wish I could implement. You also, I also have a note in here from Lauren that says, put clover in it, you heathens. Clovers are, so. okay. So 
a lot of herbicides and stuff i believe kill clover and stuff it's wow it's it's so so, cute it's so it's so good it's clover is like known for restoring nutrients okay so (laughs) so like in in like in like farming fields a lot of the times like if they need to like retire a field a field for a year because it doesn't have the correct like nutrients like it used to be a thing i don't know if it still is because i have not looked into modern farming practices but it used to be a thing that instead of just leaving it fallow you could put clover in it because it's known for being restorative vis-a-vis nutrients anyway that's actually really interesting i didn't know that yeah it's it's like yeah anyway so i'm i'm a big fan of clover cool uh, <laughs> i like it because it's cute and bees like it yeah it's it's also mm-hmm. not, if you have clover in your grass it's also like it helps keep it from being like uh monoculture but not that you That's like true. let it it ends up growing tall enough to really do anything but anyway well it, it's almost like automatically short too like why not just have it it'll be nice and short for you anyway yes. hey thanks for listening we're gonna put an outro in here and that is the end of the, of the episode. Goodbye. <laughs> the end. Thanks for hanging out with me, Ellie, and our best friend, Earth. Uh, so, so that's our outro, huh? That's what we're going with? Uh, we'll do it better next time. Hey, thanks for listening to Speaking for the Trees. Feel free to follow our social media accounts. We are at Trees Speaking for both Instagram and Twitter. If you have any topic ideas or corrections, you can go ahead and email those to forthetrees.pod at gmail.com. Our logo is by Tyler C. Hurst. You can find him at at Tyler C. Hurst on Instagram and Twitter. Our theme song is Porch Swing Days Faster by Kevin McLeod. Okay, love you, bye.